All right, our uh, next case is uh, Taylor et al. et al. versus Bank of America. Uh, I'll note that Justice Berger is recused in this case, and I thank uh, both sets of counsel for your willingness for us to begin a little bit early. So we'll hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I'm Brad Cutro, and with my co-counsel Keith Levenberg, I represent Bank of America, and I'd like to reserve seven minutes of time for rebuttal. This case has come to this court on an unconventional path, but the ruling below was conventional, straightforward, and consistent with this court's precedence. The Superior Court held that because each of the plaintiffs was on notice of their alleged injury and well aware of the events giving rise to their claim, many years before this lawsuit was filed in, 28, in May of 2018, their claims were barred by the applicable statutes of limitation. That's a straightforward application of this court's unanimous opinion and precedent in Christenbury versus Medflow and other cases from this court. As Judge Dillon indicated in his dissent, Judge Bell got it right in the Superior Court and the Court of Appeals got it right the first time in Judge Young's opinion. So this court should reverse the second Court of Appeals panel's decision on reconsideration and adopt Judge Dillon's dissent to affirm the dismissal. Now I'll first address the statute of limitations issue and then turn to the res judicata collateral estoppel grounds for the dismissal. First, some very brief background on the federal government's HAMP loan modification program. HAMP was created by the federal government in early 2009 and rolled out very rapidly. Its eligibility requirements were all promulgated by the federal government and were widely publicized to borrowers. Mortgage servicers like Bank of America then undertook virtually overnight to implement HAMP for loans they serviced. All the plaintiffs here alleged that they applied for loan modifications in 2009 or 2010, but ultimately did not obtain them, and as a result, their loans went to foreclosure. All of plaintiff's foreclosures took place in 2011 or 2012, except one in January 14. But their complaint was not filed until May 2018, more than four years after the last foreclosure pled by these plaintiffs. That was Ms. Perry. By then, all their claims were time barred. That's because, as Christenbury held, North Carolina has long recognized the principle that a party must timely bring an action upon discovery of an injury to avoid dismissal of the claim. And that's because, and I'm quoting, statutes of limitation strike the balance between one's right to assert a claim and another's right to be free from a stale claim. Here, the plaintiffs were well aware of their injuries years before. First, they had not obtained the loan modifications they sought, even though, according to their complaint, they had repeatedly submitted all the required information. Second, they alleged that they went to foreclosure on their loans and lost their properties by 2012 or 2014 at the latest. That put them all on inquiry notice of their potential claim. From that point on, statutes of limitation were running. That's what the first Court of Appeals panel by Judge Young held and what Judge Dillon's dissent maintained. In addition, plaintiffs pled no inquiry after they were denied their loan modifications and no attempt, even in their foreclosure proceedings, to assert that they were entitled to loan modifications or had been improperly denied loan modifications. Mr. Kutra, there was not any discussion in the briefs about the extent to which this, I mean, there are limits on what you can assert as a defense in a foreclosure claim. There are, there are. Which were not really discussed in the party's briefs, best I could see from reading them. Well. What is your basis for, so that we'll understand, what is your basis for contending that these claims could have been asserted as a defense to a foreclosure case as compared to this being the subject of a separate action for an injunction? Well, either or, Your Honor, that's true. First of all, in any foreclosure action, there are two elements that are relevant here. One is there must be a valid debt and there must be a default. Right. And both of those are necessarily inconsistent with the idea that this particular borrower was in fact entitled to a loan modification and had been wrongly denied a loan modification. 
Now, to the extent that those defenses somehow couldn't be raised in a foreclosure, although they are necessarily inconsistent with the elements of foreclosure, there is, as the J.P. Morgan case points out, uh, the, the, the right, the borrower's got a right to enjoin the foreclosure and to raise those kinds of defenses to the foreclosure. Now, that gets to the ratio to kind of collateral estoppel basis for the claim. But again, either of those options were available to any of these plaintiff borrowers, and they were not, they did not avail themselves of, of any opposition. There's nothing of that sort pled in the amended complaint. I mean, in, in your brief, you know, in your brief, you also argue as a matter of fact that the various items of information upon which the plaintiffs rely were in the public record as of the dates of the foreclosure, and I've looked at some of them, but I, I didn't write down all the dates. Uh, given the procedural posture that we find ourselves in, what is the basis for your argument that these, the information contained in these affidavits was, quote unquote, on the public record, not necessarily, not necessarily because you know it to be, but because it is reflected in the complaint, the other documents that you can consider in the course of ruling on the motion we've got before us. Well, I'd, I'd like to, to back up uh, a little bit, Justice Irvin, to, to point out a couple of things. First of all, in terms of what was the trigger for, for notice of the claim, notice inquiry, and the, and the need of an individual to, to determine whether or not they had a claim and to take steps to find that out, all of these borrowers knew that they had experienced a significant setback, first of all, at the time they were denied a loan modification, second, at the time of the foreclosure. That certainly is a material event to anyone that should have triggered them, put them on inquiry notice to look into whether or not they had a claim. Second, there's ample, um, uh, there, there's an ample showing in this case, and there's certainly a, a clear case law holding that the ability to bring an action uh, asserting claims arising out of a HAMP modification uh, was, was available to many borrowers, independent of these declarations that are particularly focused on here. And I'll point to, first of all, um, the, the, the HAMP uh, MDL proceeding that, that was initiated in 20, or, or in, uh, created in 2010, which gathered class actions from all over the country and which resulted in a denial of class certification in 2013, reflects that buyers all over the country, uh, borrowers, excuse me, all over the country were, were on notice and were able to pursue claims without these, these declarations that happened later on and, and, and were filed ultimately in 2013 in that HAMP MDL. We've also cited in our reply brief, Your Honor, the Traber versus Bank of America case where two pro se borrowers from Polk County brought claims arising from their loan modification against Bank of America first in 2009, then in 2010, and then in 2013, all raising claims that said the loan modification was improperly denied um, I have a claim arising out of that. And in fact, if you look at that case, it's a Judge Gere opinion from the Court of Appeals, Traber versus Bank of America. They make in that case virtually identical allegations to the allegations made in this case. They talk about um, the process was frustrating. The bank said they didn't have information. I knew I'd sent them. They refer to the bank of the, the, the HAMP modification merry-go-round. So it's essentially the same allegations. And those were brought by pro, pro se litigants again, by 2013. So the declarations that, that uh, the plaintiffs here point to were not necessary to give these borrowers the ability to investigate or bring a claim well before the statute of limitations had expired. Uh, and again, we point to the, the many uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of other cases filed around the country arising from the, the uh, deficiencies of the HAMP modification process, not just against Bank of America, but against other lenders as well. Many borrowers, it's, it's objectively clear from the record in the case law, had the ability to bring these claims in 2012, 2013, well before these statutes of limitation expired. So, uh, and that brings me to the, the corollary to the rule in Christenbury is that a potential plaintiff must exercise reasonable <laughs> diligence in investigating a potential claim once on inquiry notice, which we would submit 
the denial of a loan modification and certainly being pressed into foreclosure would be sufficient to put a plaintiff, to put a borrower on inquiry notice, and we would cite the court to the Wilson versus Pershing case, and to even well before that, the Pembry manufacturing case, which is a 1985 case by Justice Meyer, and Justice Meyer wrote the opinion and said uh, the, the a plaintiff need not be an expert, but cannot sit on their rights. And we'd submit that under the rule of Pembry and Christenberry versus Medflow, the, the plaintiffs here sat on their rights and did not file their lawsuits timely, and that in fact their lawsuits were not in any way contingent upon or dependent upon these late breaking declarations, which again, those were filed in 2013 on the public record in the, in the uh, MDL proceeding and were widely available publicly after that, were certainly cited in other lawsuits. On that point, Your Honor, I would, I would point you and the court to uh, a couple of cases where those, um, uh, where those particular um, declarations were addressed, well, first of all, where the, the notion of fraudulent concealment was addressed, and in particular where those declarations were addressed. And I would cite the court to the Cantrell case from Arkansas, and more specifically to the Mandozia case in California. Mandozia, in the Mandozia case, that's a case from California, federal court, but these same declarations came up. And the judge said, these don't have anything to do with these borrowers. So that's not a basis to toll the statute of limitations or to find some kind of fraudulent concealment because some de declarant in some other case about some other people issued this declaration. Um, and it, seems, it seems to me the Court of Appeals majority said we're going to send it back for more findings of facts and conclusions of law and decline to reach the merits. Am I missing something? That's exactly, I think, what they did, Your Honor, and that's, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and that's hard to figure out because there should be no findings of fact on the 12B6 motion. And isn't that the sole issue that's before us, is whether the Court of Appeals majority erred? Uh, well, I, I think that is an issue, but from our perspective, Your Honor, we think that the first Court of Appeals panel got it right, and so we're seeking from this court an affirmance of the Superior Court's ruling below based on Judge Dillon's dissent, which does reflect that the first Court of Appeals panel got it right, and, and before then, Judge Bell got it right in Superior Court in Mecklenburg County. Um, and, and again, to, 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 to finish my thought briefly about that Mandozi case, that case involved, uh, the, frankly, the same law firms on both sides, the same allegations about these declarations, and that judge said, these don't relate to this, these plaintiff's allegations. That's not a basis to toll the statute of limitations and dismiss the case based on the statute of limitations. And that was in March of 2018, before this case was even filed in May of 2018. I, I want to uh, go back to this question of uh, um, the Court of Appeals opinion and whether it was correct to remand for findings of fact. And, and it seems to me that, that if there are factual disputes about um, an element of the statute of limitations, then facts could be relevant. And so I want to start then from which part of the statute of limitations statute are we saying applies? Because doesn't, um, this is 1-52 um, subsection 9, which says, for relief on the ground of fraud or mistake, the cause of action shall not be deemed to have accrued until the discovery by the aggrieved party of the facts constituting the fraud or mistake. Isn't, isn't, that, the, uh, isn't that where we need to start, that, that they're alleging fraud and their statute of limitations starts from when um, they, de they discovered what constituted the fraud? And, and Your Honor, uh, Justice Earls, that's where um, this line of cases that I've just referred to about inquiry notice uh, comes into play is because the cases have said that there's a there's a burden on a plaintiff to do uh, an invest reasonable to exercise reasonable diligence and to pursue their claim once they're on inquiry notice and it's our position that these plaintiffs were on inquiry notice when they went into foreclosure that something had happened they do not need to know the entire scope of the eventual claim that they may bring but they're on notice to begin investigating that claim so, under the sta in, in order to avoid the statute of limitations. So you're saying that our case law ha has interpreted this provision to say that the cause of action shall not be deemed to have accrued until there's 
something to give the plaintiff's inquiry notice that they should look for fraud? That's, that's where, the, where the plaintiff has a reason to believe that they may have been defrauded or, or mistreated, and that puts the party on inquiry notice to begin an uh, uh, inquiry. And, and it could be something as simple as, as consulting a lawyer at the time. It could be looking publicly for some kind of information that would help them understand what their claim might be. But yes, that's how our cases have, and, and, and what our cases have not have not held is that uh, um, any potential litigant can wait uh, until they ha find their way to a lawyer or a lawyer finds their way to them to say, you have a claim and let me give you this information that I have. Uh, because there's no limiting principle on how long that could toll a statute of limitations. I mean, un under the position that I understand my, my opposing counsel would say, if a new plaintiff came uh, today and, and retained them, there would be no statute of limitations if that plaintiff had not had the benefit of uh, some additional information that this uh, new counsel might be able to, to give them. Well, and I understand your position that the, that the statute can't totally depend on when someone finds a lawyer, but if we go back to when it would be reasonable for someone to make inquiry as to whether or not they've been defrauded, isn't, isn't one element of fraud is that the statements were made with intent to deceive. Well, I, I, you, you, and so d don't these plaintiffs have to have had some, um, some basis on which to make an allegation that they were, that the banks intended to deceive them? I, first of all, Your Honor, I don't think all of their claims require an intent element for, for, for one thing. Second, um, what, what the cases um, have said about that is, is and, and I would point, I guess, the court back to, uh, and, and to respond to your question, back to the allegations of the complaint itself, Your Honor. The complaint itself alleges a series of events of frustration of, of the borrowers. Now, again, we, we're, we're interpreting the amended complaint in the light most favorable to the plaintiff here, as we must, but, but the allegations in the complaint indicate that they were told things that they knew weren't true, that they were told that they hadn't sent documents that they had sent, that they were somehow not uh, in compliance with things that they knew that they had, in fact, requirements that they knew they, in fact, complied with. And we submit that on the face of the complaint, that there, was, there were sufficient uh, indications that they might have a potential claim against the bank that justified them to, justify the, would justify this court in finding that they were on inquiry notice of the need to pursue a potential claim to, to investigate it as this, as this court uh, and in many decisions has held and to exercise reasonable diligence based on what their own experiences were. And we know that that was possible because many other litigants did exactly that and filed lawsuits in 2009 and 2010 um, based on no more information than, than these plaintiffs have pled in the amended complaint that they have. And, and I guess then my final question would be, um, why isn't that a factual matter that um, the trial court should resolve before deciding that the statute of limitations was not met? Because again, it's clear from the face of the complaint, first of all, what their personal frustra individual frustrations and experiences were, and then second, when they didn't get the loan modifications that they now maintain they were entitled to get, and when they went through foreclosure after they believed, as they pled, that they were entitled to loan modifications. And those loan modifications would have supplanted the loan agreements that, that were the basis for their foreclosure. So those facts, all pled on the face of the complaint, are sufficient to put the plaintiffs on inquiry notice and to start the statute of limitations running. Uh, that's, and again, I think the, 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 that's certainly how it was briefed in the trial court. I think if, if you review the transcript of the argument, that's how it was argued. And, and, our, and, and there's no reason to believe that the trial court did anything other than rule on that basis that on the face of the complaint, applying the standard Rule 12b6 analysis, that the plaintiffs were on inquiry notice as of the time, no later than the time of their foreclosures. So that's the basis for, uh, for the, the lower court's ruling. And I think that was understood by the first court of appeals panel by, in Judge Young's opinion there. Uh, and, and then again by Judge Dillon and his dissent, which went specifically to the statute of limitations argument, that all of that was apparent from the face of the complaint. 
if I could turn, turn briefly to, to uh, some of the res judicata collateral estoppel points uh, that Justice Irvin raised, um, uh, as I indicated, for each foreclosure, there was an adjudicated determination that the plaintiff's original loan agreement, unmodified, was valid and enforceable and created that valid debt. Um, the amended complaint pleads that, that plaintiffs were induced to default on their loans and that they were injured by the foreclosure itself. So the failure to raise those issues and those defenses, either in the context of a foreclosure or in, an, in a claim to enjoin, in, a, in an action to enjoin the foreclosure, um, as, as the Court of Appeals explained as possible in the Funderburg versus J.P. Morgan case, um, that's, an, that's something that the plaintiff could have and, and would have been expected to do. Instead, those foreclosures were completed in 2012, for the most part, with the one exception of uh, Ms. Perry's uh, that went on into 2014, but she'd been in conversations with Bank of America about her loan modification since at least 2010. So, again, those, that, that was the basis for the Court of Appeals, uh, race judicata, and collateral estoppel ruling. And again, I would point the court again to the Traber versus Bank of America Court of Appeals opinion by Judge Gere, which held the Traber's claim was barred by race judicata, even though they alleged they had acquired new information about alleged HAMP violations later on. So for that reason, we'd ask the court to reverse the second Court of Appeals decision, adopt Judge Dillon's dissent, and affirm the trial court's dismissal on Rule 12b-6. Unless there are other questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Counsel, we'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Chief Justice Newby and members of the North Carolina Supreme Court. I am Shell Robinson, per the pleadings, William Robinson. I'm a member of the Mecklenburg County Bar, and I'm proud to be here with my colleagues, Ms. Miller and Mr. Orr, in representation of the plaintiff appellees, Chester Taylor et al., in this particular case. To orient the court, as you well know from the review of the briefing and the record, this case arises out of what seemingly was a 12b-6 analysis of a complaint largely predicated on fraud-related claims by the diverse plaintiffs against Bank of America. The background of that analysis and the dispute that exists is the financial crisis that everyone on this court very much understands that began somewhere in 2007 and 2008 and extended for some period of time. It's not very far in the distance past, but even in this time now of economic upheaval, it's hard for all of us to remember how transcendently different the world was in 08, 09, and 010. And that's what led to some of the programs that are at issue, including the TARP program and the HAMP program that are the subject of the complaint in this lawsuit and the dispute where we are today. As this court very well knows, and as the complaint laid out in its allegations and its supplemental materials in the exhibits, after the economic calamity of 07 and 08, Bank of America and many of our other proudest and soundest financial institutions needed a lifeline. TARP was such a lifeline. TARP allowed for the provision of significant monies from taxpayers via the federal government to banks that were deemed too big to fail. Those TARP monies, including the HAMP money that's at issue in this case, however, were not unfettered discretionary funds to use as you see fit. Rather, they were funds that were provided with a purpose, and one of those purposes was recognizing that not only were these banks too big to fail, but that hundreds of thousands, frankly, millions of homeowners were in dire straits because for, frankly, the first time in the lives of most Americans, the value of houses over time was not increasing, but rather was decreasing. So individuals' collateral was being lost simply by the mere fact of being alive and having ownership in that collateral. And at the same time, the economy was difficult, making it 
very um, problematic, if not impossible, for recipients of the intended HAMP funds to survive. Who are the parties to this particular case? The plaintiffs are all intended HAMP recipients. They're the type of individuals that our federal government looked to that needed some form of assistance, and they're a very special and isolated group of individuals. They're individuals that would have had the ability to continue to pay on loans. They were individuals that, because of that, likely were working and continued to have gainful employment, but unfortunately, due to the nature of the economy, couldn't survive on the existing loans that they had. What issue do you say is before us? Uh, Justice Newby, thank you for asking that question, and I think you asked that question of Mr. Cutro earlier, and that is frankly the critical question. As, as this court knows, originally, just Judge Bell dismissed the case per Rule 12b-6. The case was appealed to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. A decision was rendered. We asked for a new consideration by the court. It was provided. The majority decision sent the case back to be remanded to the trial court to make certain findings of fact uh, and conclusions based on the allegations of the complaint. And that decision, and only that decision, is before the court at this particular time. It is true that Judge Dillon wrote a dissent, and in his dissent he indicated that Judge Bell got it right. But where we stand right now is there is a decision from the Court of Appeals authored by Judge Carpenter asking the trial court for assistance in analyzing that complaint. And we believe that Judge Carpenter asked for that assistance because after a review of the record from the Court of Appeals, having a chance to see the arguments that were made at the lower court and having an opportunity to review the complaint itself and understanding the standard that Judge Earls talked about in this case, dating with the rules of discovery, that it simply did not match the allegations in the complaint that clearly indicated individuals that did not have knowledge of fraud. Well, is, is, is the remedy, assuming that that's in what we've got here, so that there is a factual dispute shown on the face of the record or the face of the pleading, isn't the appropriate thing to do to reverse the trial court's dismissal order and send it back for further proceedings rather than to reverse and send it back for findings? I think that what Judge Carpenter at the Court of Appeals and the majority uh, were interested in was looking at the black and white allegations of the complaint per the 12b-6 standard. But it's, it's, sub, it's subject to a de novo review. Absolutely. Right? And a de novo review is we don't have to worry about what the trial court said. The only issue is did the trial court, based on our independent analysis, reach the right result? Yes, sir. So what on what purpose would be served by findings? Are you aware of any case that's gone up on a challenge to a 12b-6 that resulted in a remand for findings? I am not aware of such a case, and I will say as a practitioner in the trial courts, we recognize that that's not a common procedure to request findings of fact. In fact, they were not requested in this particular case. There's yeah. no dispute. I have a feeling both of y'all were rather surprised by that one. I, I would say that's probably a fair that's probably a fair assessment. And I think ultimately it goes back to the Court of Appeals disconnect between the ruling from the lower court with Judge Bill and ultimately the first decision from the Court of Appeals, which seemed to adopt a lot of information that came outside 
of the allegations of the particular complaint. But that, but that, that goes, I think, to the merits of the trial court's order rather than the sufficiency of it with respect to whether additional findings are needed, doesn't it? It, it, it ultimately does, and the question is, what is the remedy? And I think procedurally where we are is this court can affirm the Court of Appeals decision, have it go back and have those type of findings made. Bank of America. Well, what would be the purpose of doing that if findings are not appropriately made in decision with respect to whether a 12B6 motion ought to be granted or denied? I would disagree that findings are not appropriate. Um, they may not be necessary, but I would disagree that they're not appropriate. Yes, the standard is uh, a de novo standard, but the Court of Appeals ultimately looking at the complaint felt the trial judge had made some type of issue that raised an issue with it because on the merits, and, and Ms. Miller is going to speak to you briefly uh, about the merits of the case, and I'd like to answer your question. And I, I think ultimately where we are with respect to this is that procedurally under standard procedure of this court, and you know your jurisdiction better than I do, um, what is before this court is the decision of whether to affirm the court and send it back for findings. Your, your, your colleagues argued that basically what is before the court is brought is based upon what is stated in the dissent. And their argument seems to be the dissent says I would have affirmed Judge Bell's order from the trial court and that that suffices to bring the merits of dismissal order before us. What response would you make to that argument, assuming that, that's, it, assuming that I've got it correct, that that's what they're arguing? I, I think that is what they are arguing, and I think it leaves us with some logical alternatives, and those alternatives are what we have asked for in our brief, which is to affirm the Court of Appeals and send it back, or to send it back to the Court of Appeals for a determination on the merits. Bank of America obviously logically has asked that this court make a decision on the merits. So I, I think that is that is ultimately where we are, if I've answered the question with respect to that. I, I will say this, and I'm going to turn this over to Ms. Miller. Justice Irvin, you asked a question this morning in the case about the deed restrictions, about if someone had come to your office and wanted to file search something or search the register of deeds, the trepidation you might have on putting your malpractice carrier on and I will simply say in response to Mr. Kutro's argument that if in 2010 or 11 or 12, if a random person had come into my office or one of the 10 best lawyers in Mecklenburg County and said, I am in default uh, and I have a foreclosure that is pending, being able to jump from that and how you defend it, kind of like the question you asked about 20 minutes ago, this is fraud would be virtually impossible would not be anticipated by uh, practitioners at that time this was a new world that existed at that point and frankly I'm not sure it would be a defense to fraud because modification takes the acceptance of the whim of the party who's going to modify you and those parties would still be in default I'd like to turn this over to Ms. Miller, who can speak about the dissent and with respect to the underlying merits. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Caitlin Miller, and I also represent the Appellees in this case. As Mr. Robinson mentioned, I will be addressing the issues of statute of limitations and res judicata in the context of Judge Dillon's dissent. If you reach the determination of the merits on statute of limitations and res judicata, as Justice Irvin suggested, the plaintiffs should still prevail for two primary reasons. The first is that Judge Dillon's dissent misapplied the North Carolina discovery rule. As Justice Irvin mentioned, the North Carolina discovery rule is that a cause of action shall not be deemed to have accrued until discovery by the aggrieved of the facts constituting the fraud. Now that stands in direct opposition to Judge Dillon's dissent, which actually says that the plaintiff should have brought suit or did not bring suit until more than three years after they became aware of their injury. There is nothing in the North Carolina statute 1-52 that runs the statute of limitations for fraud 
from the awareness of the injury. In other words, all we're looking at is awareness of the facts constituting the fraud. Can I just ask one question about that? Um, I understand uh, the, the argument on the other side to also be that because all of these plaintiffs except for one is out of state, that, that you can't import into North Carolina our statute of limitations. You have to look at the statute of limitations that would apply in the states where they live because that's where the land is that was foreclosed on. And I, I don't know that I saw anything that addressed what those statute of limitations in those states might be. What's your response to that? Sure, certainly, Your Honor. So admittedly, most of the briefing deals with North Carolina law. What I will say, though, is that we believe North Carolina law applies because according to North Carolina precedent, statute of limitations is a procedural issue, and therefore the law of this state applies. With that being said, I would like to note that every state in, in question in this complaint, it's California, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, and North Carolina, every single one of them have a discovery rule, with the exception of Michigan, that's almost identical to that of North Carolina's. Well, let's, let's, okay, so we've got one from Michigan where there is no discovery rule in the event that we were to conclude that the appropriate choice of law rule required cons consideration of the Michigan statute of limitations. Do you have any argument as to why, assuming that we reach the merits, that claim shouldn't be found to be time barred? It's certainly, Your Honor, and I'm glad you asked that question. The bank's briefing... I'll try, to, try to help out whenever I can. <laughs> the bank's briefing suggests that Michigan does not have a discovery rule, and while they don't have a rule titled the discovery rule, they do toll statute of limitations for fraudulent concealment, and fraudulent concealment has been pled throughout our complaint. What I will also note is that the Court of Appeals um, decision in Jennings, which we cite in our brief, notes that if a plaintiff asserts the date on which they discovered the fraud, that that assertion is sufficient to start the statute of limitations running at that specific date. So is it, is it your contention then that if you assert, assert an actual notice date, a reviewing court doesn't have the authority to look at the remaining allegations in the complaint and determine that the complaint in fact alleges, I mean, Mr. Cutro's expression was inquiry notice that they, they, they were on notice that they should have inquired at an earlier time that you're the date that you've alleged is binding even though there may be other allegations in the complaint that, that would cause one to think inquiry was appropriate at an earlier time? Your Honor, to answer your question, we first have to consider the fact that this is at a motion to dismiss stage. Right. So we do have to accept all of the allegations as being true. What Mr. Cutro said about the inquiry notice, however, goes to the second thing that Mr. that Judge Dillon gets wrong in his dissent, which is that that's squarely within the role of a jury to determine if the plaintiffs were on inquiry and whether they actually did um, perform due diligence in, in doing that inquiry. Is your, is your argument then that any time there's a question about the, 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 the identity of the point in time at which the plaintiff was on notice in this type of case, that's uh, automatically a, a jury issue that a court cannot determine on the basis of a 12B6 motion. So, so, Your Honor, to answer your question, I'll point you to the Forbes decision um, that we cite in our brief. It's this court's Forbes decision that notes a jury should be the party responsible for determining if a person should have been dis should have discovered the fraud. And this is particularly true when the evidence is conflicting or inconclusive. So, is it your, if, if assuming for purposes of discussion, we had a case in which the evidence was not conflicting? Uh, would that still involve a jury issue in your view under Forbes? Well, Your Honor, I think for that hypothetical, we would have to assume that there were facts within the four corners of the amended complaint that made clear the plaintiffs were aware of the fraud. We and that's what we don't have no, here. One, one question, and I'll, one more, and I'll let you go on to something else. Uh, are you, are you, is it your argument, then, that actual notice is required rather than uh, you know, reason to be aware that there might be a problem and therefore need to make an inquiry? So most case law suggests that plaintiffs, um, it's the time at which, at which plaintiffs discovered or should have discovered the fraud, which goes to the constructive notice. My argument in response to that is that whether or not plaintiffs should have discovered the fraud is an 
is a question for the jury to determine, not a question for the Court of Appeals or for this court or for Judge Bell at the trial court to determine. I guess I've got one more. Is it your argument that it's always a question for the jury? Can you repeat that again? The question of whether the date upon which someone reasonably should have known something, is that always a question for the jury regardless of the surrounding facts? Well, Your Honor, yes. The reasonableness is always a question for the jury. Absolutely. The only time that it would not be a question for the jury is if, again, if the facts of the amended complaint within the four corners of the amended complaint stated that the plaintiffs were aware of the fraud at a prior time. And we don't have that within the four corners of this amended complaint. What we have alleged here is that on the dates of December 2016 through April of 2017, that's when the plaintiffs became aware of the facts constituting the fraud. And under the Jennings case and prior North Carolina precedent, that is sufficient to toll the statute of limitations and to start the statute of limitations running at that specific date. I would also like to note that the bank's briefing notes the U.S. versus Kubrick case as being persuasive. But this case, all due respect, is completely irrelevant. That case was dealing with the Federal Tort Claims Act, which is a completely different statute than the one that we're dealing with here today. Now, additionally, I'd like to address the Christenberry case, which Mr. Kutrow briefing and also his argument relied heavily on. But before you leave the dissent, because I wanted to be respectful that you were addressing the dissent of Judge Dillon, how should we consider the judge's citation of this court's precedent in the Horton case that where it's apparent on the face of a complaint that there has been some time bar, that as a result there's no need to enter any findings of fact or conclusions of law? Is Judge Dillon correct that on the face of the complaint there was time bar aspects of it? And if he was wrong, then how should we look at our own precedent on this? Your Honor, Judge Dillon was wrong in that he drew that face of the complaint statement from the date that the plaintiffs became aware of their injury, which was when their respective properties were foreclosed on. But all due respect to Judge Dillon, that's not the statute in North Carolina. We don't start the running of the statute of limitations for fraud at the date of the foreclosure or the date of the injury. We start the statute of limitation when they became aware or should have discovered the facts constituting the fraud. So while the Horton case may have said that if it's apparent on the face of the complaint, here we don't have any evidence on the face of the complaint that the plaintiffs were aware of the facts constituting the fraud. So was the dissenting judge wrong in the misapplication of the law or the misapplication of the law as it applies to these facts? In regards to the Horton case, he was wrong in the misapplication of the law to these facts. But in the application of the Kubrick case and the Christenberry, he was wrong in the application of the law. He cited the Kubrick case for the proposition that this statute doesn't toll, but the Kubrick case dealt with a completely different statute that had different language that did not have a discovery rule built into the statute. But under North Carolina law, there is a statutory right to the discovery rule for causes of action of fraud. The Christenberry case, I'd also like to note, Justice Newby drafted that opinion. And while that's a completely sound opinion, it's not on all fours with this specific case because that case did not have any pleadings of fraudulent concealment. And it actually dealt with the facts of an installment contract. And so it turned on whether or not there was an installment contract in that case. That's not the same facts that we have here today. The bank also notes that the plaintiffs rely on no information more recent than 2013. But I'd like to note that that is actually not true. Amended, excuse me, Exhibit 7 to our amended complaint is the SIGTARP report, which is a report by the U.S. Treasury Department to Congress. That report notes that Bank of America denied 79% of all HAMP modifications that it received applications for. You can compare that to the next highest denial rate of NationStar, which was 53. I did notice, though, and I can't truthfully say I looked at all of the declarations to see what the dates were, but the ones I looked at tended to be 2011 primarily. Mr. Cutrow says that those were all documented, and they're clearly by people in other states, not North Carolina, 
uh, and there's nothing in those declarations that I could see that tied those declarations to the claims of any of your clients. I may be wrong about that, but they appeared to be generic descriptions of the process that Bank of America was using. Uh, Mr. Kittrow further states that those documents were filed in other litigation that occurred close to the time that the uh, documents are dated. Do you dispute any of those assertions? So, Your Honor, what I dispute is the plaintiff's awareness of those prior lawsuits. Do, do you dispute that that's when they were generated and became at least available on the public record? Your Honor, as far as I know, but when they became available on the public record, uh, quite frankly, is outside the four corners of the amended complaint and therefore cannot be considered here. I'm sorry, well, say that again, Ms. Miller. So out these documents, the, whether the, the other lawsuits became available on the public domain, when they became available, that's outside the four corners of the amended okay. complaint. Right. We, we do know the dates that those lawsuits happened, and, and Mr. Kutro would like to argue that this court and other courts should take judicial notice of those lawsuits. And while a court can take judicial notice of the existence of those lawsuits, what you cannot take judicial notice of is whether the plaintiffs were aware of those lawsuits. Well, is, it, is the question whether the plaintiffs were actually aware of it or reasonably should have been? So it is a question of whether they reasonably okay. should have been aware. But again, that goes to we don't know on the face of the amended complaint whether the plaintiffs had access to a computer, whether they had access to the Internet, whether they had a television set. None of that is within the face of the amended complaint, and therefore it cannot be considered. And it goes back again to a jury gets to be the one to decide whether or not they reasonably looked into it. Because perhaps we find out in discovery, and Mr. Cutro is certainly free to ask these questions in discovery, we may find out that Mr. Chester Taylor went down to his local bank and inquired about what was going on. He was reassured by the bank that no, no fraud happened, and therefore he should not have had to discover um, any further. He didn't necessarily have to go Google whether there were other lawsuits out there. That may have been reasonable. That may be what a jury determines is reasonable. But again, we're at a motion to dismiss stage, and so that's for a jury to decide. Not right, and that's what I wanted to ask you about, the motion to dismiss phase. At this point, are we just to look at the, the four corners of the complaint, as you say, in the light most favorable to the plaintiff and to see if there's allegations to support that they learned of it within time? I mean, that they timely filed based on their allegations of when they learned. Absolutely, Your Honor. The Jennings case specifically states that the plaintiffs there asserted they discovered the fraud in September of 1981. That court said that that assertion was enough for the motion to dismiss stage. And again, we're at a motion to dismiss stage. The plaintiff has asserted when they learned about the fraud, and at this stage, that's sufficient. And again, the reasonableness that Justice Urban has asked me about is goes to a jury question, and we have to send that to a jury to be determined. And, and I would like to note the, the SIGTARP report I mentioned that was dated January of 2017. I'm not suggesting that the, the statute of limitations should start to run at that time. That's when Congress became aware of the fraud. But we have pled specifically in the complaint of when the plaintiffs became aware of the fraud, and that's sufficient. Now, I would like to note, too, um, going backwards, um, Judge Dillon's dissent states they should have sought legal advice once they suffered injury. Once again, that's a determination for a jury. The Forbes case that I mentioned before is that a jury is responsible for determining if a person should have discovered fraud. I only have a few minutes left, but I would like to quickly address the res judicata argument that Mr. Cutro noted. I will note that Judge Dillon's dissent did not mention the res judicata issue or collateral estoppel issue. However, that is on, um, has been raised by Bank of America and is in their briefing, and so I did want to address that. The first reason that res judicata and collateral estoppel cannot apply is that, according to the Edwards case, when specific performance is sought in one case and a money judgment in another, that res judicata and collateral estoppel do not apply. That's exactly the case here. In the first lawsuit, which was foreclosure, what was sought was specific performance or the sale of the home. Here, we're seeking a money judgment. Those are two different remedies, and therefore, res judicata and collateral estoppel cannot apply. Additionally, res judicata requires that an issue be one that could have been previously litigated. We've mentioned before that plaintiffs have stated they did not discover Bank of America's fraud until December of 2016 through April of 2017. 
And therefore, if they weren't aware of that fraud, they could not have litigated it in the previous foreclosure. Now, the other thing I'd like to mention, too, and um, this goes back to Justice um, Irvin's previous question to Mr. Cutro, most of the states on this complaint primarily use non-judicial foreclosures. In a non-judicial foreclosure, the clerk has to determine whether there was a debt and whether that debt was defaulted on. They don't determine whether there was fraud that happened some years before in a HAMP modification, and that's not the appropriate forum for the plaintiffs to bring that up, even if they had been aware of it. But again, whether the foreclosures are judicial or non-judicial is not within the four corners of the amended complaint and therefore cannot be considered at this stage. And so we have to draw the, we have to read that in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs and assume that they could not have raised that such as in a non-judicial foreclosure, which is most common here in the state of North Carolina. In closing, I'd just like to note that, again, we're at a motion to dismiss stage and it really sounds elementary to go over the, the rationale behind a motion to dismiss, but the purpose of discovery is to flesh out some of these issues that Mr. Cutro brings up about what the plaintiffs knew. Right now, we know that the plaintiffs have alleged when they discovered fraud. That is within the statute of limitations, and therefore, the plaintiffs must prevail on the statute of limitations issue. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I'll try to respond uh, in, in as logical an order as I can to some of the points and questions that were raised just now. First of all, to address the scope of review, um, I think Chief Justice Newby said it's, it's based on the dissent. Well, first of all, the first line of the dissent is, um, I continue to believe Judge Bell got it right. I continue to believe that the dissent, uh, excuse me, that the first panel's opinion was correct, which embraces all of the issues we've argued here today in the, in the initial Court of Appeals panel from Judge Young. Um, the court can certainly affirm the, court, the Superior Court's dismissal order on the basis of the dissent or under its de novo standard of review, but I think the important point procedurally here is that one Court of Appeals panel can't constrain this court's review of another Court of Appeals panel's decision. That, would, that seems to me to be antithetical to the scope of this court's appellate jurisdiction. Um, and so I think this court can review um, the, uh, and affirm on the basis of the original opinion or of Judge Dillon's dissent or simply on de novo review by looking at Judge Bell's 12B6 order. On that point, there is no reason to assume as the second panel evidently did, that Judge Bell somehow went outside of the appropriate 12B6 standard in, in the face of the complaint viewed most favorably to the plaintiff. There's no reason to assume or infer that she did that. Um, the, the case was argued uh, on that standard in the, in the, uh, extensively for over three hours. You can look at the transcript. It was briefed on that basis. There's nothing to suggest that Bank of America's arguments in the Superior Court required the court to look outside the four corners of the complaint. We did cite cases involving HAMP, HAMP modification litigation from other states, uh, but that's not outside the four corners of the complaint. That is case law that addresses the specific types of causes of action that these plaintiffs are now trying to bring untimely. Mr. So, Cuto, the, the plaintiffs have argued that Judge Dillon used the wrong standard when he said that plaintiffs um, didn't bring their suit until more than three years after they became aware of their injury? And I, I disagree, Your Honor. I think, well, I think what Judge Dillon said was, was correct because they were aware of their injury. And this, this gets to perhaps Justice Earl's question as well. A plaintiff or a potential plaintiff is not required to know every single fact that might be relevant to their cause of action. They're, they need to know, and this is what Christenbury said, that they, that they have been injured in a way that, that puts them on inquiry notice to, to determine whether they have been, whether they may have a cause of action. And we submit that on the face of the complaint, given the uh, experiences that the plaintiffs relate in each of their specific claims, they were on notice that there was a problem and that they all allege specifically that they were improperly denied a loan modification to which they were entitled. 
And that's sufficient to put them on inquiry notice and to exercise diligence in pursuing their claims. And do and you also agree, do you agree that we are to take the allegations in the complaint in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs? That's the 12B6 standard, Inc yes. Including the allegations that the, um, that the, there was fraudulent concealment? Well, and to address okay. the fraudulent concealment point, um, there's, a, there's case law that says what is and what isn't fraudulent concealment. This court, or, and just like the Superior Court, isn't required to simply accept that uh, when it's a conclusory statement. The fraudulent concealment doctrine doesn't apply here <coughs> because there's no allegation that Bank of America did anything to delay or deter the filing of plaintiff's suits after they were denied the loan modifications. And at a time when other, other disappointed HAMP applicants were filing lawsuits in 29, 2009, 2010, 2011, other HAMP applicants were filing lawsuits, and there's no allegation here that Bank of America did anything to deter or delay these, these particular borrowers from filing their lawsuits. Um, and and uh, in that regard, uh, I would point the court to the Mendoza case, which I mentioned earlier, which is a California case, and that court's handling of this exact issue on the case. Because the, the Mendocia court, um, again, in March 2018, before this case was even filed, held the initiation and ultimately the completion of foreclosure proceedings provided indisputable evidence to plaintiff that she would not receive a loan modification. Once the property was foreclosed upon, plaintiff had clear and undisputed evidence she would not receive a loan modification. Thus, plaintiff was requ required to bring her fraud claim no later than three years after her property was sold at foreclosure. And the court goes on to say, in this case, plaintiff cannot benefit from the discovery rule. Plaintiff's entire argument related to the discovery rule regards testimony in an unrelated matter and thus involves testimony about the unrelated loans, uh, referring to the, the declarations that are also submitted in this case, which, to your point, Justice Irvin, were all filed in 2013 at the latest. And how do we know that? Because they were attached as exhibits to the plaintiff's complaint with the ECF stamps from federal court on them that reflect the filing date in 2013. So that's how we know how long that information has been in the public domain. And, and the Mendocia court goes on to say, plaintiff has failed to show how for this particular loan, Bank of America concealed any actions or inactions from her. Again, these plaintiffs, on the face of the complaint, pled experiences in being denied loan modifications, which they alleged they knew at the time were improper, that were sufficient to put them on inquiry notice of their claims. I think to, to go back to your question, Justice Hudson, that I go back to cases like Doe versus Diasis that makes it clear that fraudulent concealment has no application here because the plaintiffs were on inquiry notice of their claims. Not every single fact that they might eventually find to support their claims, but on inquiry notice to take reasonable steps to investigate whether they had a claim. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you, you indicated that um, there was information in the public domain um, longer ago than the statute of limitations period. Back in 2013, yes, Your Honor. But, but in the face of direct allegations in the complaint that they didn't know because the defendants took actions to conceal the scheme, um, don't we have to take the, the allegations of the complaint um, in the light? No, not when they're entirely conclusory, and that brings me to perhaps a final point. Okay. The, the, the standard that these plaintiffs w would argue for here is that um, uh, any plaintiff can escape the statute of limitations by simply reciting, I did not know and I could not know in those entirely conclusory and subjective terms. That would be a real departure from our law. Our law has never held that it is an entirely subjective standard. And in fact, as I said, cases have been dismissed on 12B6 on statute of limitations grounds in Christenberry going back to Pemby Manufacturing in 1985. That is a conventional uh, way of addressing statutes of limitation arguments on 12B6. Um, Uh, to, to try to wrap this up, uh, the, on the face of the complaint, first of all, there's no reason to believe that Judge Bell erred or looked beyond the four corners of the complaint uh, in making her 12B6 ruling on the face of the order 
or on the briefing and certainly in the transcript of the argument. Second, the allegations on, of this complaint on their face indicate that plaintiffs were on notice, that they had had a problematic loan modification experience with Bank of America. They were denied loan modifications and they were on notice of a potential claim arising from their improper, uh, improper uh, denial of a loan modification, just like many other plaintiffs around the country, including the, the folks from Polk County and Traver, the folks whose various cases rolled up into the uh, multi-district litigation um, that was initiated in 2010 and then uh, ended in 2013 with the de denial of class certification. Again, that's referenced in the complaint. Also referenced in the complaint, this is paragraphs 32 and 33 of the amended complaint, was the, um, you know, the consent judgment where there was a, a settlement with Bank of America as a result of the national mortgage settlement. So all of that was well before Thank the statute. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both. Thank you.